Journey to Pascha, Orthodox Spiritual Reflections on Great Lent, brought to you by the Greek Orthodox Christian Society of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of Australia. Welcome to Orthodox Journey, a digital missionary activity of the Greek Orthodox Christian Society in Sydney, Australia. Today in our series Journey to Pascha, we will be interviewing very reverend Father Anastasios Bazikas about the Annunciation of the Theotokos and the Greek War of Independence, both of which are celebrated on the 25th of March. Father Anastasios is the parish priest of St. Nectarios Greek Orthodox Church in Wollongong, New South Wales, and an associate lecturer in church history at St. Andrew's Greek Orthodox Theological College in Sydney, Australia. Father, thank you very much for joining us today. Good evening, Pandeli. It's great to be with you. Thank you. As mentioned before, we'll be discussing the great feast of our church, and that is the Annunciation of the Theotokos and the beginning of the Greek War of Independence. This year, we'll be celebrating 200 years from the beginning of the War of Independence in 1821. And our Archdiocese here in Australia has organised several events around Australia to commemorate the event. But Father, we'll first start off talking about the Feast of the Annunciation. Orthodox Christians around the world love and have a special kind of reverence towards Panagia, the Virgin Mary. In Greece alone, there are thousands of churches and icons in her name. So let's start our, off our conversation with this question. What is the significance of the Annunciation of the Theotokos to us as Orthodox Christians? Padeli, I would perhaps just slightly amend the question itself and ask what is the significance of the Annunciation or the Evangelismos uh, to humanity? Uh, because as Orthodox Christians, uh, with the Annunciation, as with the other great feasts of the Church, it doesn't, while it matters that you believe in it, as an event, it goes beyond even our belief. The Annunciation, or the Evangelismos, uh, and I prefer the Greek word because it actually means the announcement of the good news, the Evangelion. Uh, and the Evangelismos of the Theotokos is actually the announcement of the good news, not only to her, but to all of humanity. And I think the uh, Apolitikio of the feast, the hymn that characterizes this feast, summarizes it very well. Today is the beginning of our salvation, the revelation of the eternal mystery. The Son of God becomes the Son of the Virgin, as Gabriel announces the coming of grace. Together with him that us cry to the Theotokos, Rejoice, O full of grace, the Lord is with you. God did not leave humanity to our own devices. We rebelled, we fell, we went our own way, we got lost in the, the mire of sin and corruption, and yet the good news which is announced to us on the 25th of March is that God has not left us alone. God is coming to be with us. That was the news that the angel Gabriel gave to Panagia, that she was going to become the mother of the God-man, 
Uh, and so it's good news not just for Orthodox Christians, it's good news for the world. As Orthodox Christians, we have the responsibility to live this truth and to communicate it to the world at large. Panagia, as you mentioned, is a much loved figure. And she is loved, I think, because of the response that she gave on that day of the Evangelismos. The angel comes to her, approaches her, gives her this message and awaits a response. And she stands there for the whole human race. She's our representative before God at that moment. Will you, the human race, receive the gift that I am about to give you? Will you accept my son in your midst? Will you take the gift of salvation that I am offering you? And on our behalf, she says, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That phrase, let it be, in, in Latin it's called the, the fiat. It is a, God uses those words when he creates the world. Let there be light, yes. and there was light. You know, let the, uh, the waters separate, and the waters separated, and so forth through the first week of creation. And now we come to the point where the let it be is not said by God, but it's said by the Virgin. And when she says it, God becomes man. Uh, and we cannot but just stand in awe of that mystery. Because it is the mystery of our salvation. It's, it's the unfolding of God's plan for humanity. God's plan of salvation. And for us as Orthodox Christians... Uh, who claim uh, this sensitivity to Panagia, to her response, we need to make her response our response uh, and share this universal message with all those who are willing to hear it and all those who are willing to say along with Panagia, let it be so. Thank you very much, Father. That was a beautiful response. And thank you for also correcting me. Um, of course, um, this, um, this event is for all of humanity. And uh, I loved the way that you mentioned uh, the Greek word evangelismos and the richness. Perhaps that doesn't come across in the, in the English good news, but um, evangelismos is theotoku and um, that, that richness of, of, of that Greek and also um, the response of, of Panagia in where you mentioned um, that she spoke for all of humanity. Um, I think that's a very, very important point. Um, now, Father, um, thank you for, for, answering, uh, for answering our first question. Let's change the focus of our topic a little bit um, and point out, and obviously our viewers probably know this, um, but the Greek revolutionaries decided to begin the War of Independence um, on March 25th. And that's the same day as we celebrate the Annunciation or Evangelismos. Why do you think, Father, that the Greek revolutionaries decided to start this war 
from the Ottoman Empire on this specific day. So when you ask a historian a question like that, <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to get a straightforward answer. Oh. All right, but um, <laughs> let's, um, if I can just take just a step back. Uh, yes. Why start the war at all? Why start mm -hmm. the, the war of independence at all? And I think perhaps we need to, uh, we can establish some context uh, for this you know, and remind ourselves that in 1453, uh, the Ottoman Turks conquered Constantinople. Uh, and it was basically the last city standing, the, the Balkans and the rest of Greece with just some small areas of the Peloponnese had already been conquered um, by the Turks, even up to uh, 80 or 90 years before that. So it was uh, 400 to you know, 450 years of subjugation, uh, basically slavery. Uh, and while the Ottoman Empire did offer certain freedoms, including certain religious freedoms, and in some respects, uh, they were a little even more liberal than some parts of feudal Europe at the time. Uh, certainly, the, uh, the Christian populations of the empire uh, lived in a state of degradation and humiliation for most of that time. Uh, the life of every Christian, from patriarch to fanariot, the, the upper classes of Greek upper classes of Constantinople, to the Greek princes of Wallachia and Moldavia in, um, in Romania, who were going to play a major part in the revolution itself. Uh, you, were, you may have had privileges as being a, you know, an, a, an aristocrat in inverted commas, but you were still subject to the whim of the Sultan and of yes. any Turk um, that may at times you know, have, sought, uh, have, have, have sought to, uh, uh, to impose their will on you. So yes, there were some freedoms, uh, and the uh, and Sultan Mehmet, after the conquest of Constantinople, uh, set up a system where he could govern the the, uh, the conquered peoples, and he called this the millet system. So that every because the Muslim Turks and the Muslims in general don't draw a distinction between a nation and their religion, uh, they considered all Orthodox Christians to be part of the one nation, the Roman yes. nation, the Rum millet. And they placed the patriarch, who was the religious leader, as the civil leader as well, just as the sultan was the caliph right. uh, of, the, uh, of the Muslims. Uh, now, this did a, a number of things for our purposes and for the purpose of the, uh, the War of Independence. It kept the Orthodox Christians together as one community, a religious community, but with national, uh, national expressions as well. Uh, that meant that there was limited assimilation. The only way to mm -hmm. leave the Rum Millet and to leave the jurisdiction of the, the Orthodox Patriarch was to become a, a Muslim. Uh, and, and this yes. did happen. Uh, people did apostatize. They became Muslims, uh, or as the Greeks would say at that time, you know, they became Turks because mm -hmm. yes. they uh, identified becoming Muslim with becoming Turks. So there was a religious consciousness that undergird the whole um, Rum Millet system. Uh, and that was what bound the Greeks, inverted commas, together, the Romier together, the Romans, which, as they call themselves. Uh, over the next 400 years, there were 
any number of rebellions against the Ottomans. Uh, Kolokotronis would later remind, um, would remind us uh, that the Greeks or the Romans never surrendered, uh, that the emperor fell in battle. No one ever signed a treaty of surrender. The war never finished as far as the, um, the revolutionaries were concerned in 1821. And there had been a precedent of 70 rebellions quashed over time. Um, wow. The last one in 1770, um, under the, uh, the, the Russian uh, General Orlov, uh, which failed in, in money and with a large number of casualties. So 400 years of slavery, 400 years of degradation, 400 years of desperation culminated in the early 1800s. 70 rebellions, in a sense, kept alive the spirit of freedom and the possibility of one day uh, becoming uh, a nation again, a free nation. In the early 1800s, we have the establishment of the, the Filikia Teria, the Society of Friends, which begins now, not just within the Ottoman Empire, but in Europe at large and Russia, to gather together the most noted uh, Greek uh, personalities of the time uh, and to bind them together uh, with certain, you know, um, great oaths uh, and secrecy to free the nation. Uh, and at the top of, uh, of this organization were figures like Prince Alexandros Ypsilandis and uh, Count John Kapodistrias, you know, who were serving in very high ranks in the, uh, uh, in, in the Russian army and in the Russian yes. diplomatic service. So the early 1800s had really brought the point of desperation and an organization now that had begun to be able to give expression to this, uh, uh, the, the desire for freedom. And a number of things happened uh, in the, uh, the latter part of the, uh, the second decade of the 1800s, leading to 1821, had the Napoleonic Wars, uh, which ended in the defeat of Napoleon and in the imposition of the, um, of the old absolutist order uh, in Europe uh, under uh, the Austrian foreign minister Metternich. Uh, that caused the great powers to seek to suppress any revolutionary sentiment at all, uh, which was going to be a problem for, for the Greeks. Uh, but you had the Russians, and the Russian Tsar Alexander, fairly much sympathetic, though he, um, he was still playing a diplomatic game across Europe. Uh, and that would again affect events. But one thing, I suppose, which are did happen in the Ottoman Empire at the time, which no one could foresee really, was that Ali Pasha rebelled against the Sultan. Uh, and by in 1820 or in 1820, uh, 80,000 Turkish troops had to be diverted from all parts of Greece to Yanina uh, in order to try and bring Ali Pasha to heel. Uh, yeah. And that was going to, um, uh, that created uh, space for other things to happen. Uh, and other things did happen. Uh, the Filikiteria uh, began to move. Uh, messages were being sent, letters were being sent, but also rumors began to spread as well. Uh, and while we're not exactly sure of the dynamics, we, we understand that the Turks became very suspicious that things were afoot uh, in mainland Greece. Uh, and that by the end of November 1820, uh, the, uh, so suspicious were they that they were beginning to uh, divert troops from fighting Ali Pasha to return back to the Peloponnesus. 
the l Turkish leadership in Tripoli Tsar in Tripoli was calling all the Greek notables, including the bishops and the uh, the high-ranking Greeks of the uh, Peloponnesus, to come to a meeting in Tripoli Tsar to declare their loyalty. Uh, they knew it was a trap, and they could only stall for so long. <laughs> and it seems that by uh, by February March, uh, on their way to Tripoli Tsar, uh, they diverted to uh, uh, Lavra, uh, and there held a meeting uh, and felt that there was no way out of this now, it had to be done, uh, and they declared the, uh, the War of Independence. And yes, you know, it happened around March 25th. Um, now, I don't think it was by design, at least not human design. Uh, I think, yes. you know, in the end, if it was by design, it was God's providence, uh, and it allowed the, um, it, it gave to the, uh, to the revolutionaries, um, uh, it gave expression to their religious consciousness and their religious fervor, uh, which undergird everything that they did. So that's probably a long uh, answer to a very short question. But it's um, uh, what I found very interesting was because it wasn't just the 25th of March, Pascha was just around the corner. Uh, right. That was April the 10th. So they, it was very, very close. Uh, and it was interesting that once the revolution was declared, once the banner of um, the revolution had been raised by the, the Metropolitan of Old Patras, uh, Yermanos, uh, and the revolutionaries themselves began to organize into their armed regiments, uh, Kolokotronis tells us that it just spread like a wildfire. He says, you could not, you could not uh, in a sense, have organized this. Uh, the moment it was declared, Revolutions broke out everywhere. Rebellions broke out everywhere across the Peloponnese and Stereolada, even in Macedonia. Uh, and he, he describes it as one rainfall, one downpour came the desire for freedom. Uh, some, something so spontaneous uh, that it just uh, spread throughout Greece. And the revolutionaries at that time were going around greeting each other before Pascha with Christos Aneste. Amazing. It was as if something new now had been given birth and they the keros the time had come father that was an amazing explanation and thank you very much for going back and giving us some context um to 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 your answer um so something connected um to 1821 and something that perhaps is not well understood or not widely known is the specific role of the clergy and the church during the War of Independence. Now, you mentioned before that during the Ottoman, um, uh, the 400 years of, of their reign, the patriarch and church leaders were seen as, uh, you know, ethnic leaders as well, um, which is very significant, um, as you mentioned before. Um, but there are also countless neomartyrs in our church um, that, that, that are commemorated. Um, which were tortured and killed during the 400 years of Turkey, Turkish occupation. But the actual struggle for freedom, how, how did the church, how did the clergy, the bishops, the patriarch, how did they contribute? What was the influence or role of the church and clergy during the Greek War of Independence? Yeah. As you know, Pantili, that's a very much a, a contested uh, historical uh, issue. Uh, and certainly in our... Um, you know, sort of a very uh, secular, you know, post postmodern age. Uh, you have many historians, both um, in Greece and abroad, who would um, uh, question the church's role. Uh, 
but I think a fair-minded survey of the literature, of the writings of the revolutionaries themselves, uh, has to uh, allow us uh, to concede to the church a very significant role uh, in the revolution itself. So, as you uh, as you mentioned, the uh, patriarch uh, was considered the yenarchis or the ethnarchis, the leader of the nation as well as the leader of the church. And in the absence of the Byzantine emperor, now after 1453, in some ways, what was left of that role was merged with that of the patriarch. Uh, so the uh, the patriarch and the bishops in general would take on the imperial garments of the sacco, uh, the mitre. Uh, in a sense, taking these on uh, and um, protecting and preserving them until such time as they would hand them back, you know, to the emperor, to the king, to the Vasilevs, uh, when he returned. The uh, first patriarch after the uh, Ottoman conquest was Yenadios Scholarios, who was personally appointed by Mehmet, and he was an exceptional candidate for the role. And um, perhaps this is just as an aside. But when we speak of God's providence, we may uh, sometimes even, you know, uh, note that the role of the, um, you know, of the Ottoman Turks in God's providence as well. Uh, we have to remind ourselves that you know, when Constantinople fell on May the 29th, 1453, uh, the, uh, the Orthodox Church had entered into a, uh, well, really a false union with the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Uh, it was a union church. Uh, and for political purposes, the emperors thought that it was necessary uh, to uh, subjugate the Orthodox Church to the Pope in order to receive military and diplomatic assistance from the West. This uh, was reversed by Mehmet, obviously, afterwards for his own political reasons. Uh, but Inadio Scolarius was one of the defenders of Orthodoxy. Uh, and under his, um, under his reign and that of his successors, uh, the Orthodoxy maintained its identity. Uh, uh, and its um, and the purity of its faith, even in the dark times of the um, of the Ottoman occupation, uh, we missed the worst of the Reformation. We missed the worst of the Enlightenment as well. Yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, we can't say when what God does or how He acts necessarily. But you know, perhaps there was a reason for these things uh, to have happened as well. But uh, certainly. Uh, as I mentioned before, there were any number of rebellions against the uh, the Ottomans, and most of them, many of them, were led by bishops and archbishops who paid with their with their life. the um, The church was the comfort of the people. Uh, it was there that they any sense of humanity and uh, personhood uh, was preserved uh, before God. In the church, you were not a slave anymore. You were not chattel, you were not a araya, you weren't cattle, uh, you were a human being before God. Uh, and even in just preserving uh, the dignity of the human being uh, as made in the image of God, uh, the church served those 400 years in a, in a remarkable way. The people themselves were deeply religious uh, and deeply devoted to their Orthodox faith, as were the revolutionaries. You mentioned the neo-martyrs, and as we said before we started, that's a talk in itself, the neo-martyrs, and their witness uh, to Christ. Uh, And I think the neo-martyrs, you know, they're on a register, you know, 
up there. Okay, um, so when we're talking about the revolutionaries, we're not, you know, Nehemiah's they they followed Christ's uh, commands to to the letter, turn the other cheek, um, uh, to uh, to bear witness unto death, and that's what they did, um, bearing witness to Christ unto death. Um, but for most of the people, and even most of the, the clergy, I imagine, you know, operating at that register is, is, is very difficult. You know, we're not all saints. Yes. Uh, we, are, we are not all, um, you know, made of that kind of stuff. Uh, and it was uh, a very natural uh, orthos or desire of a people to be free. Uh, and the church and the clergy who came from the people, part of the people, um, certainly carried those aspirations uh, with them. The uh, revolution itself, you know, began as we mentioned before under the banner of the cross. Uh, the first Greek flag, um, and today it's a different form of it, but was the cross, the cross itself, yes. the white cross on on the blue. Well, it was a blue on white, and then white, on, and then white on blue <laughs> uh, background. Um, the uh, when Kolokotronis are. Uh, uh, led uh, his uh, soldiers into battle, you know, he led them as he told school children later on in the 1830s after the war was ended, he says, he said to them, um, you know, to the school children, you must keep your faith and reinforce it because we took up arms first, we said, for faith and then for the homeland. So to preserve their faith, uh, to preserve their right to believe, their right to act out their faith. That was the first task of the revolutionaries. And in that task, the, uh, the clergy, the monasteries, uh, and, and the monks, and then uh, certainly played a part. And many monasteries were used as bastions, they were used as fortresses. Uh, as you know, the, um, the wealth of the church was placed at the disposal of the fledgling Greek state um, yes. to, to conduct the war uh, and many uh, significant uh, ecclesiastical personalities took part. I mean you have someone like uh, the Metropolitan of Old Patras, Germanos, who, uh, uh, who raised the, the, uh, the banner of the revolution and, and blessed. Um, but in every town and every, every village where rebellion broke out, they would begin with a doxology. They would begin with uh, a blessing. Uh, in one of the uh, the first battles that the Kolokotronis won in in Valtetsti in, um, in in May 1821, immediately after he defeated the, the Turks for the first time, he called a day of fasting. The whole wow. army fasted for a whole day uh, afterwards to thank God for uh, for the victory. Uh, so there was this um, this spiritual sense that undergirded. Uh, their actions. And of course you had some clergy uh, who uh, took an active part in the fighting itself. Uh, someone like Athanasios Diakos, Athanasios the deacon, uh, who, uh, who died very early on. He was defeated, fighting heroically, very near Thermopylae, uh, where Leonidas and mm -hmm. 300 had fought so many centuries beforehand. Defeated, he was um, tortured, he was impaled, and roasted alive, um, we are told. The, um, it's interesting though that the clergy that fought understood that what they were doing was, well, it was something less than what Christ had commanded. 
um, they knew that they could not go back to being a priest afterwards. Um, so they would hang up their petrachili, so to speak, to engage in fighting, knowing that this is what they had to do, uh, but it was not the perfect way. Um, and in, in the Eastern uh, Church, in the Orthodox Church, we've never had any notion of a, a just war uh, or a holy war, a jihad. Um, in the East, we've understood that war is always bad, but sometimes it is the lesser of two evils. And in this case, the, uh, the revolutionaries and the Greek people at the time felt that it was the lesser of the two evils. Things were so bad that something now had to change. And this was the only human way of going about it. The figure of the patriarch, uh, uh, Gregory V, I suppose, uh, stands as a, uh, a point of, of contention, uh, even in recent debates in Greece. Gregory V, as patriarch, had responsibility not just for the Greeks in Greece, but for the Christian populations, the Orthodox Christian populations scattered throughout the Ottoman Empire, including in Asia Minor, in Cappadocia, in, in the Middle East, uh, in the Caucasus. Uh, he had to look after everyone. Uh, and when the revolution broke out in Greece, and we're not sure exactly what part he played, uh, uh, he may even play a, played a part in that, uh, but the Sultan moved immediately to slaughter uh, to massacre the Christian populations throughout the empire. Uh, and he knew that, and that was one of the reasons why the, the, the patriarchate was always so cautious uh, in its dealings with the, um, with the government and in its often lack of support for revolutionary movements because of the consequences uh, that could be, would be felt. The, uh, the Sultan, on finding out about the revolution, uh, so we're talking about March the 25th, 1821. Within a few days, Constantinople had been informed uh, and the, uh, the patriarch was put in a position where he had to condemn the revolutionaries, especially Alexandros Ypsilandis, who had actually started the revolution in modern day Romania in February, um, condemn him uh, and excommunicate him and all the revolutionaries. Uh, and yet, you know, while we, as you know, later on, as you know, in hindsight, may sort of look at that uh, a little, um, you know, suspiciously, uh, at the time, the revolutionaries knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, yes. They had lived under the Turks for a long time, and they knew the things that had to be said and done. Alexandros Ypsilandis himself understood this meant nothing, uh, and, you know, told his soldiers so, uh, as did the other revolutionaries in Greece. Uh, Ironically, the Sultan too understood that it meant nothing. <laughs> um, and so he, uh, he uh, was intent on vengeance. Uh, and in one of the, uh, the ironies of history, he calls the, uh, the, the Sheikh al-Islam uh, the, the highest uh, Muslim cleric of the empire uh, to come and to, uh, to issue a fatwa uh, against the Christians of the empire so that he could begin the mass slaughter uh, of the Christians. Um, the Sheikh was a just man uh, and uh, he stalled for time for a few days. Uh, he consulted with the patriarch 
the patriarch uh, told him that he was a uh, that he was not a, a revolution across the board. It was just uh, very much uh, uh, geographically uh, limited to um, the southern part of Greece. Not everyone in the empire, not every Christian in the empire, was guilty of this, uh, and that the guilty should not pay the innocent should not pay the price uh, along with the guilty. Uh, and the um, the sheikh accepted this. Uh, and he refused the Sultan the fatwa, which led to his, um, his he was then uh, exiled uh, into uh, to, uh, an island of the Aegean Sea and on his way he was strangled. Uh, mm -hmm. So the Patriarch himself would die very soon afterwards, on, mm -hmm. uh, he would be hanged on Basra uh, outside the doors of the, uh, the Patriarchate and left there for, for three days before being handed over to a uh, the mobs of Constantinople and thrown into the into the sea. So, ironically, the uh, the Greek War of Independence began with both the highest Orthodox Christian cleric and the highest Muslim cleric losing their lives uh, in in defence of of the innocent. Uh, the many many Christians in Constantinople and Cyprus, Smyrna, uh, Cappadocia paid with their lives. Many clerics were killed in, in Cyprus. Most of the bishops were executed uh, because of this. So vengeance was meted out. Uh, the clergy paid with their lives. In the, um, the first Greek minister of uh, ecclesiastical affairs under the, um, the new government in 1832 uh, expressed it in this way. He says, how many times the Greek clergy displayed heroic Christianity. How many times the venerable shepherds disregarded their own lives and laid them down for the sake of their flock. That was the role of the clergy, uh, to walk with their flock, to fight with their flock sometimes, to die with their flock. Uh, and the patriarch uh, gave the first example of that. He had the uh, the opportunity of escaping Constantinople. Uh, the uh, diplomatic corps in Constantinople were ready to um, get him onto a foreign ship and into Russia. He refused to go and he told his synod not to go either. <laughs> uh, and he said, the time has come for I as Patriarch and for you as the synod to pay with our lives, if, if that is God's will. Uh, but, he says, and not only was he, was he brave in that sense and courageous, um, but he was also very politically astute. Because he said, this will be to the benefit of the nation. He says, this will bring the, uh, the royal courts of Europe. This will get their attention. They will see the plight of the Greeks, of the Christians in the Ottoman Empire uh, once I am killed. Uh, and so, in a sense, he sacrificed himself uh, that the, um, the war would gain the kind of diplomatic traction uh, that ultimately it needed uh, in order to succeed. As you said before, we could probably have uh, talks upon talks with all these, all these um, questions, and um, definitely your insight as not only a priest but as a church historian, um, we greatly appreciate that insight. And especially as you mentioned before, perhaps um, some of these topics are not given justice by other academics and people in more secular circles. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and um, 
an insight into uh, our church's history and also our nation's history. And um, uh, us as Greek Orthodox, I believe that we should um, very much as, as much as possible to, uh, learn this history. And especially now with 200 years after this, um, the Greek War of Independence, I think there's no better time for us as, as um, Greek Orthodox in Australia to, to learn. And uh, thank you very much, Father, for being part of, of this journey with us and for educating us as well. And hopefully in the not too near, uh, far future, we can have you as well and perhaps uh, we have, can have another conversation. So thank you very much once again, Father, for, for joining us. Thank you, Padeli. Uh, it was uh, very enjoyable to engage with you and with, and with your viewers and listeners um, in, in such a way. It is uh, an extraordinary, important anniversary, the 200 years. Uh, and I think quite apart from its, the historical uh, aspects to it, which are, are very interesting um, to tease out, I think the, uh, what we need as uh, today in Australia, 200 years later, uh, as, as um, Australians of Greek descent, is to find the relevance of, of that for us today. And I think that then goes back to the 25th of March as the Annunciation, as the Evangelismos, uh, the uh, announcement of freedom for all of humanity, which the Greeks in 1821, you know, in a sense, applied to themselves in, uh, and to their own context. You know, and we have to find how to apply you know, that universal message of salvation to our own context uh, as well in 2021 in Australia. Thank you very much, Father. that you have enjoyed this episode of the Journey to Pascha podcast. Please be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening platform and check out the Greek Orthodox Christian Society YouTube channel, our website at lichnos.org, that's L-Y-C-H-N-O-S dot O-R-G, and our Orthodox Journey Facebook and Instagram sites, for even more Orthodox spiritual content.